does God answer your prayers? I was reading a story of a gentleman who came out. He was a delivery guy, and his phone dinged. He had a text message of a new delivery, but they forgot to tell him the address. And so he simply looked to heaven and said, God, can you have him send the address too? And his phone dinged a second time, and there it was. A gentleman standing there looked at his friend and said, how come God never answers my prayers like that? I don't know if Howard Hendricks is a a name that you're familiar with or not. He taught for the better part of five decades at Dallas Theological Seminary. Well known, has written a number of books, and... One of his interesting stories is that he grew up in a, an unchristian home. His family didn't know Christ. He received Christ after he had graduated and moved on. And once he accepted Christ, he began to pray that his father would. His father was a career military guy. He had been in the military for 30 plus years. And Howard, on numerous occasions, had attempted to share the good news of Jesus with him. But never did his father have any interest? His father would simply respond, it's okay, Howard, I'll make peace with God when the time is right. This went on for 40 plus years. One day he received a phone call as he was sitting at his office in, in Dallas and the gentleman introduced himself. He said, I, I know that you don't know who I am, but I just wanted to share you a story. I had the chance to meet you once when I, you spoke at a pastor's conference. And, and on the way home, I, I picked up a number of tapes that you had given. And in one of those recorded messages, you shared how you had been praying for your father. And your story sounded so similar to, to me of my story of my father, who just before he passed away accepted Christ, that I began to pray, Lord, would you, if possible, use me to reach Howard's father? He lived in the city of Philadelphia, and one day he was on public transportation when he saw, standing on the street corner, a man who had a striking resemblance to Howard Hendricks, and he jumped off the bus, and just on a whim, he approached the gentleman, he said, by any chance, are you Howard Hendricks' father? Howard Hendricks was a little shocked and said, yes, I am, are you one of his students? And he said, no, no, I'm not, but I was just wondering, could I buy you a cup of coffee? And that began a several-month friendship. The pastor never talked about uh, church, never brought up the gospel, never invited him to church. All he did was, almost weekly, went out and listened to the war stories that Mr. Hendricks had. Uh, sat in a, a, a cloud of cigar smoke as he recounted the glory days. The days when the doctor informed him that he had terminal throat cancer. This went on for several weeks, and as the the pastor began to see Mr. Hendricks' physical condition deteriorate, he was planning on going on a three-week trip to the Holy Lands. And he said, before I go, Mr. Hendricks, I've listened to all of your stories. Would you listen to one of mine? He said yes, and he took him back to John chapter 3. And he shared the story of Nicodemus and, and shared the importance and the absolute necessity that all of us have to not simply be religious, but to have that relationship with Christ found through faith in what Jesus had done. And he said, I, I'm going away, and I don't know if I will get back before you pass. Would you be interested and placing your faith in Christ. And he said yes. And he called Howard. 
And Howard will share in one of his books that when he heard this story, he exclaimed, You're kidding, right? I've prayed for 42 years. Do I really believe God hears? As we have begun 2022, we've taken a bit of a break from the book of Romans. Lord willing, we'll be jumping back to Romans next Sunday. But, but I, I wanted to spend one final week in, in the Lord's Prayer. We started that, that last week, and I foolishly thought that perhaps we could get through it in a week. But this morning, let me just read Matthew's account, beginning in chapter 6 and verse 9. Matthew records these words. He says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins... Your Father will not forgive your sins. We last week tried to introduce the the prayer by going back to the background and and took a few moments to notice that that Jesus wants us to be very careful that we're not publicly praying to impress others with our prayer, but rather we are simply seeking God's help. We, We don't pray simply believing that if we ask long enough, if we pray faithfully enough, God will answer. We then went to the recipient, and I, and I know that we in our culture have no problem imagining God as Father, but that couldn't have been a more foreign, a more radical idea to a first century Jew, but he is not just Father, he is our Father. There's a corporate nature to it, there is a personal nature to it, and he is in heaven, he is above all, he is over all, he's in control of all things. And yet he invites us into his presence. This morning, I I would like to take the few moments that we have just to look at some of the requests. If you were here last week, I, I shared that there are six. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us, forgive us, and lead us. But before we look at those individually, I, I, I was struck by something. Maybe you can guess what it was. Jesus divides the prayer into two major sections. Half of the prayer begins with your, and the other half focuses on us. In fact, half of the prayer that Jesus calls us to pray really is about praise, adoration, and worship. Several years ago, we were going through prayer, and I tried to implore us not to view prayer as a child writing to Santa Claus in December, or the story of the guy who finds the the bottle with a genie in it. That prayer is not simply the way to conform God's will to ours, not simply the way to get what we so desperately want, but rather prayer is the opportunity to enter the presence of God and not try and manipulate him into doing our bidding. After the service, somebody came up and asked, so how does a person do that? I I don't know that I fully understand the answer, but I have to think at least a big part of the answer is taking time every time you pray to remember who it is you're praying to. Think back last week, the 5, 10, 20, 30, 60 minutes you spent in prayer each day this week. What percentage was dedicated to worship and praise? And what percentage was dedicated to Gimme, gimme, gimme. 
Now, I, I have to admit, if I were being honest, I, I know that I would end up with a whole lot more time on the give me than on the your name part of it. One of the reasons I have enjoyed so much praying through the Psalms is if you go back to the Psalms, it always amazes me that it is not uncommon for the psalmist to spend 90% of the psalm praising God and then at the very end throw in his request. Can I challenge you this week to try your best? Maybe you'll never get to 50-50, but maybe try to make certain that you spend a little more time on the worship part than on the request part. But he's going to share with us these three uh, requests uh, of worship, and he begins by, hallowed be your name. I, I fear one of the biggest struggles that we have in church is that we have our church language that you use in church. You throw it out there and you smile and so you figure everybody knows that you know what you're talking about. If I were to ask you to write a definition of Hallowed, what would it be? And when was the last time outside of the walls of a church did you use the word Hallowed? It's one of those words that because we've said the Lord's Prayer so many times, we're so familiar with the word, but do we really know what it means? What does it mean to hallow something? Well, it's language that simply means to make something holy. What does holy mean? It's another one of those words we use all the time, and I fear sometimes we don't really stop to contemplate it. Holiness is a fancy way of simply saying something set apart for a specific use. In the Old Testament, you go back to the tabernacle, and they took normal everyday items, and they dedicated it to the temple or to the tabernacle, and then they became holy, and they could be used for nothing else save the sacrificial system and the worship in the tabernacle, because they were holy. You are called to be holy. You live, we live in a godless pagan world that has little time for God. And yet we are called to be set apart for his service. God is holy. Now I'm really getting confused. If God's holy, what in the world does it mean for me to hallow his name? How can I do anything? to make God any more holy than he already is? Well, I'm not sure I fully can answer that, but may I suggest that at least two things, praising God for who he is and praising and thanking God for what he does. I don't know how many of you are in a, a habit of picking up one of these. If you are, you will know that most weeks, there's on one side an outline on the back side, some prayer requests. It's a half sheet cut in half. This week, it's four sheets because there's a center. If you didn't pick one of these up, I, I want to challenge you to do so because on the inside, there are on the, the left-hand side a bunch of Hebrew words translated into English. Words like Adonai, Jehovah. Adonai is the Hebrew word for Lord. Jehovah was that covenantal name that God gave to his people Israel. And when combined, it spoke of the most sovereign, 
the Lord of all things. There's El Elyon, which means God Most High. El Olam, the God Eternal. El Roy, that, that's one of my favorite names. It goes back to the story of Hagar as she's running from being chased out of her home by Sarah and she's all alone and she's convinced she's going to die. And God says, no, 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 I am the God who sees everything. There's never a moment that you are apart from God's eyes. As you come to the New Testament, Jesus is given dozens of names, and on the, the right-hand side is a list of names. And the reason I included this, I want to challenge you to take this sheet. If you didn't pick one up, hopefully there's plenty more out in the foyer. If there's not, talk to me. I'll make you one or I'll send you one. I, I, I would challenge you to fold it in half and put it someplace that you'll see it this week. Maybe that's the visor of your car. Maybe that's the mirror in the bathroom when you're getting dressed in the morning. Maybe it's right by your computer stand. Maybe it's in front of the TV so you can't watch TV till you look at this. I, I, I don't know where it needs to be for you to see it. And I want to challenge you to set aside at least a moment of every day and pick one of the names. Maybe go back and, and read the Bible verse and contemplate what does it mean that God sees everything. He's watching you right now and will at every moment this week. How does that impact the way I live? I'm convinced that a big part of hallowing God's name is to take time to truly praise him for who he is and what better way than to take the names that God himself chose for himself and use those as a praise. But not only is there praising God for who he is, but taking time to give thanks for what he's done. I, I fear that one of the great problems with prosperity, and, and I recognize that every single person in this room knows somebody who's more, more prosperous than they are, and, and my guess is the vast majority of us don't think we're prosperous enough. But if you compare yourself to any other person anywhere else in the world at any other time in human history, you are amongst the wealthiest people who've ever lived. I fear that prosperity tends to give way to greed, not gratefulness. The more I have makes me want more rather than stopping and thanking for the things that I do have. I, I, I want to challenge you not just to take some time to, to contemplate who God is, but to think back in very specific ways. How has God shown up in your life this week? See, I, I'm convinced that the reason we don't often see God is because we're not looking for him. And if we were, he would be there all the time. And I want to challenge you to spend some time this week praising God through some of his great names, but just being very specific. Thank you that this morning I was able to get out of bed. Because some people weren't. Thank you that I had the resources to put gas in my car so that I could drive here, that I'm guessing most of you will go home to a meal, that all of us have clothes to wear, that we have so much. And yet I fear sometimes all we can get caught up in is what we want next. See, I'm convincing hallowing God's name is taking time so that I am a grateful person, constantly reminding others of where my things come from. He says, hallow your name, your kingdom come. 
21st century Americans, that doesn't really have a huge impact. I, I, I debated whether or not I wanted to use big ter- terms. I decided I'm going to. I apologize if they don't mean anything to you. Eschatologically speaking, eschatology is a fancy word that's used in theology to speak of the last times. Evangelistic simply means the willingness to share the good news. I I would suggest that a big part of what it means for for Christ's kingdom to come, if you go back to the, the, the Gospels, it's interesting to me, the book of Acts begins just on the day that Jesus would ascend. He's been resurrected for 40 days. He's been walking with, talking with, fellowshipping with, instructing the disciples. And in Acts chapter 1, he is gathering to leave the disciples. And he tells them, I, I want you not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they have one chance to ask a question. This is my last chance to ask Jesus. What is the most important thing I ask him? If you got one question of Jesus, just one, what would it be? I know what theirs was. All right, Jesus, when does the kingdom come? See, for a Jew, the whole idea was that God had promised that he would raise up an heir of David who would sit on the throne of David and would reign and rule over all of the world. And they could not fathom the Old Testament. They could not process the prophets and all of God's prophecies without envisioning God reigning and ruling over Israel through a descendant of David in a physical kingdom. And their last question was, Jesus When does his kingdom come? If you go to the very end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, and yes, I know red doesn't work very well on the brown. I apologize. I I, I wanted to do that so that you know John is quoting Jesus. The Bible ends this way. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And John says, amen. What does amen mean? I I fear that we too often think amen means over and out. It's the end of a prayer. We're done talking, God, that's all we got to say. Amen is a Hebrew word that simply means so be it. It's a willingness to say exactly what has been said I am in wholehearted agreement with. And John says, as Jesus prays, I am coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. When was the last time you prayed for Jesus to return? See, I fear that we have become so accustomed to seeking our answers from men, seeking our answers from politicians, seeking our answers from societal revival, that we forget this world is never going to be right. No human being will ever fix it. It will never be as we need it to be. The only time it will be what it ought to be is when Jesus returns and he makes everything new and he starts with his kingdom and he is a benevolent dictator who reigns and rules over all the world and brings peace and health and prosperity to every heart, ends all wars, ends all hatred, and it is only when Jesus returns. In fact, it's worth some time, and we certainly don't have the time this morning, but it would be well worth our time to go back and track through the epistles and to see how often Paul and Peter and John 
contemplate the return of Christ because ultimately it really is the answer. And Jesus says we are to be constantly praying, your kingdom come. But I'm convinced it also has an evangelistic aspect to it because as Jesus sends out his disciples, he told them to heal, he he told them to care, but he told them to preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That I am convinced that Christ not only is looking for the day when he will reign and rule over the earth, but he's looking for people to allow him to reign and rule in their hearts. And so let me get really specific. Who are you praying that God would bring into his kingdom today? Every single one of us have friends, neighbors, relatives, co-workers, enemies that are in desperate need of a saving relationship with Jesus. Do they make it onto your prayer list? I'm convinced that part of praying your kingdom come is the willingness to be specifically praying for the souls of people around us. And yet, I know in my life, I can't speak for you. It is so easy to get caught up in all the things that I am facing that day, that week, that month, that I forget There's a world that desperately needs Christ. It's up to me. It's up to you to be praying and to sharing. I'm convinced that praying for Christ's kingdom to come must involve my passion to share Jesus. And then he says, your will be done. This is, I think if we're honest, the hardest of all the requests. Because I'm really good at praying, God, Dan's will be done. Not your will be done. What happens when God's will doesn't coincide with your will? We don't have time to go from the beginning to the end of Scripture, but it fascinates me how often God's will clearly deviated from the will of people. You don't believe me? How about you go to the book of Exodus? Do you really believe it was Moses' will to get trapped by the Red Sea? And yet it was being trapped by the Red Sea that opened the opportunity for God to work in an amazing way. And the greatest miracle of all the Old Testament was because they followed his will. How about Gideon? Do you really think it was Gideon's will? God, you want me to go to war against the Midianites? Okay, I will do that. I've got this huge army. What do you mean I'm supposed to go to war? with 300 guys. That's ridiculous. How about Hezekiah? He gets surrounded by the king of Assyria, the most vicious ruler on the planet at that time, throwing all kinds of insults. Do you really think that was God's will? And yet the angel of death shows up in an amazing way. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, in Daniel chapter 3, know that it's God's will they should worship, but it certainly can't possibly be God's will for them to be thrown in a fiery furnace. Could it be? And yet the only place in the book of Daniel that God shows up physically in the form of the angel of the Lord is in the midst of the fiery furnace. But without question, the greatest illustration comes to the Gospels. And we hear Jesus himself saying, please allow this cup to avoid me, but not your will. Not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus was laid in a tomb. And yet if Jesus had not followed the will of the Father, Sunday would never be the same. 
And on that glorious resurrection Sunday, Jesus came out of death itself to provide life for all of us because he was willing to follow God's will. Even when it was really hard. I know that God is going to ask many of us to do things that we may not want to do. To get reports from the doctor we don't want to hear. To have economic changes in our life that we're not prepared to accept. All of us will be faced today or in the near future with a part of God's will that frankly doesn't sound fun. But the question is, do I really believe I understand better than God? I was visiting with somebody this week and they made the comment that they were, they were talking to somebody who was really struggling with the whole book of Job. How in the world could God ever allow the children of Job to die? It must be a fictitious story. I didn't get a chance to talk to the person, but I would love to have shared with them the whole point of the book of Job is this. You don't understand. You don't have enough information and enough intellect to make those kinds of decisions. Only God does. And I can promise you that if you get your will, it won't work out the way you want it. But if you get God's will, It will always be greater than you can imagine, even when it might involve something like death. I'm not trying to suggest that, that it's always going to be fun or even always enjoyable, and yet, am I willing to pray, your will be done in heaven, in earth, just as it is in heaven? And thus, Jesus moves from the worship section to the request section. And I was struck by, I I, I know I have heard this, I know I've seen this, I may even shared this before, but why is the request give us and not give me? Why is it us, not me? I don't know. How's that for an answer? But I have to wonder how radically different our church would be if we truly believed all of our problems were shared problems. That your material need was my material need. That your relational struggles were my relational struggles. That your spiritual battles, if you haven't figured out, he's going to make a physical, a relational, and a spiritual request. If we truly believe that when any of us suffered, we all suffered and our prayers reflected, God, give us, forgive us, lead us. I think it would radically change not just the way we pray, but the way that we interact. We've been so uh, taught by our society to believe life is all about me and my rugged individualism. God has existed in eternity in a community of himself, a triune God that has always been with himself, and he longs for us to understand that joy of community. And I have to wonder if maybe the reason he wants us to pray, give us, is because we are so good at give me and so bad at give us. But he says, give us food. 
I, I think it's fair when we come to the subject of bread to see bread as more than just physical nourishment. The first century Jews, the staple of their diet was bread. And thus, he is obviously talking about food. But in the very next passage, he's going to go on with one of the great passages. It'd be lovely to spend the rest of the morning on it. But he's going to turn after fasting to this. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up your treasures, yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet the Heavenly Father feeds them. And you are not of more value than they are. And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I can't tell you how many times this winter we've been driving. And the fields will be covered in snow. And it's zero or below and we'll see a deer. Where does that deer get food? Do they have some kind of barn that I don't know about that they store up food? Where do the birds find food this time of year? Where do the animals, how do the animals survive this time of year? God provides for all of them. Do you really think he can't provide for you? I'm afraid sometimes I live like that. If you were to ask me, of course, I would say, I know God can, but will he? But I I think the most uncomfortable part of the prayer is give us each day our lifelong need of bread. I'm getting to that age where one starts to think about retirement. I'd really like to make certain that I have enough for the rest of my life. Now, maybe you don't care and you're just going to go on and it's no big deal to you. But occasionally I find myself thinking, if I were for some reason have to stop working, could we survive? Of course we could. God says all I need is food for today. I know I've got food for today. In fact, I'm convinced that what he is trying to get your attention to is to go back to the book of Exodus. I'm guessing most of you haven't spent a whole lot of time in the Sinai Peninsula. It is one of the most desolate places on the planet. Imagine having somewhere upwards of two million people in a land that looks like that. How do you feed them? Not a problem. You just have something fall from the sky. And then you call it, what is it? I know we call it manna, but that's just Hebrew for what is it? I don't know what it is. 
I, I don't know what it looked like. I, I don't know what it l- tasted like. In the book of Numbers, we're told it tasted like coriander seeds that were sweet. I've always envisioned cinnamon rolls. I don't know if that's really what it tasted like or not. We're told that they boiled it sometimes, that they baked it other times, that they made all kinds of things with it. I, I don't know, but one of the interesting parts is God didn't plop it on their tables. He could have. He could have very easily just had it shown up in their food dishes. And today the, the, the diet is, I don't know, shrimp and steak. I don't know. He could have done all of that. Not shrimp because shrimp wasn't part of the law. Forget that. I'll take that out. <laughs> he could have, but no. He said, I'm going to send this, what is it, on the ground. And oh, by the way, you've got to get up in the morning because if you wait too long, it's gone. And you have to harvest enough so that you can feed your family that day. And oh, by the way, you can't do it for tomorrow because it's going to rot on every day other than Friday. Because I want you to understand that the whole principle of the way I created the universe is I worked for six days and rested. That's what I want you to do. And so there will be no manna on the Sabbath. But amazingly, in an unimaginable way, the manna that rots overnight every other day doesn't on Friday night. Because God wanted the children of Israel to understand it all came from his hand. Now, you don't get up every morning and go out to the field and find manna. But you do get up and go to work. And I know that many of you work hard and have accomplished much in life. And it is really easy to begin to think, I did this for me. Well, who gave you life? Who gave you health? Who gave you strength? See, I I, I want us to remember that everything we have is a direct gift from God. Even the manna that we so desperately need every day, daily bread, comes from the hand of God himself. Give us. And then he moves to forgive us. I, I think it's interesting. The only part of the prayer that he elaborates on is this whole forgiveness. He's going to say, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I I, I don't believe this is a soteriological passage. I, I don't believe he's talking about salvation. What he is talking about is the transformation salvation must bring. Ray Stedman pastored for years in the San Francisco Bay Area and he shares in his book on the topic an experience he had with an individual who came into his office and began to share a story of horrific abuse. And the man ended the story with, I just can't forgive him. And Ray listened for a little bit and he said, I I, I, I want you to understand that many times when we say can't, we really mean won't. Do you mean you won't forgive him or you can't forgive him? He said, I've tried. I just simply can't. To which Ray Stedman said, then I have to conclude you're not really a believer. Because God says that if you have been forgiven, you will forgive others. Obviously, the gentleman wasn't real happy with Ray Stedman, but it did make him begin to think. Several weeks later, he came back into his office and he said, "I, I want you to know that when you said that, I wasn't very happy with you. But I really began to struggle with the question, is it can't or won't? And concluded, yes, it was won't. But I must. And he did. 
I think the reason he spends time on forgiveness is because if we're honest, this is one of the most difficult experiences any of us will ever do. We don't like to forgive. We struggle with forgiving. We struggle when somebody cuts us off on the road to forgive them, let alone when they do something vicious, intentional, and malicious. Do we forgive one another? And I have concluded that the biggest problem is we view life so poorly. See, I'm afraid too often, at least for me, it's easy to think that, okay, God forgave me, but come on, I'm a good guy. I haven't really murdered anybody. I haven't raped villages. I haven't plundered. I haven't done great atrocities. It wasn't that big a deal. Nothing like what somebody did to me. And Jesus tells that whole parable of the man who had debts in the millions and was forgiven, but wouldn't forget a few hundred dollars. And that's really me. I have offended a holy God so viciously. And yet he sent his son to die in my place so I could be forgiven. How can I not forgive others? It's not to say relationships will always be the same. But relationships can't survive without forgiveness. I I, I came across an article this week of a couple in Israel that I believe it was on Tuesday, celebrated their 91st anniversary. They were orphans. They were married at age 10 and 12, a little earlier than I would recommend. (laughs) But it obviously worked out okay for them. And they were interviewing this couple. The, The husband was 103 and the wife was 101, and they had spent the last 91 years together. The only way your marriage will make it to 10, let alone 90, is the willingness to forgive the offenses committed against you. If you spend much time with me, I will offend you. And sorry to disappoint you, you will probably offend me too. But the only way relationships work in marriage, in families, in churches, is if we forgive. And then he ends with this incredible request, Lord, Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from, the NIV translates it, the evil one. Not just evil. See, I I fear that sometimes we forget that there is truly an evil one who wants the worst for you. And he's real. And he lives. And Jesus says that we need to be praying for us, that God would lead us not into temptation and would protect us from the evil one. Much more I could say, but let me just ask this question. In light of Jesus' six requests, what will you pray for this week? Father, I I thank you for the chance to gather. I I thank you for this incredible prayer, and I, I know that there's so much more that we could and should learn from it. But God, it is my request that each one of us here this morning would take one thing, one thing that we could go and live differently because of your word this morning. For it is in your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Would you join me again in worship?